0: bowl of the sky. Wind pounded down in an outrage of screams, and the breakers thrashed and battered our shelter. Yet there was all but a religious tranquillity among those who walked the decks at night. The angrier the sea, the icier the rain, the more palpable the solidarity among those withstanding them together. An admiral might chat to a cabin boy, a hungry man of steers to a sleepless earl. One night a prisoner, a maddened, violent Galway man, was brought from the lockup to take his exercise. Even he was included in this communion of the somnambulant, quietly conversing and sharing a cup of rum with a Methodist minister from Lyme Regis in England who had never tasted rum before but had often preached its evils. New things were possible in this republic of nighttime. but the ghost showed no interest in possibility or novelty. The sailors sometimes wondered if the ghost's nightly ritual was a religious observance or exotic self-punishment, such as the Catholics of Ireland were whispered to favour. A mortification, perhaps, for some unspeakable transgression, or ransom for the souls ablaze in purgatory. They believed strange things, these Aboriginal Irish. They talked in a nonchalant, matter-of-fact manner about miracles, saintly apparitions statues that bled. Their prayers were like spells or voodoo incantations. Maybe the ghost was one of their holy men. Among his own tribe, too, he evoked confusion. The refugees would hear him opening the hatch, hobbling down the ladder and into the gloom of candles, his hair wild, his clothes sodden. They knew it was dawn when they saw him coming darkness clung around him a cloak of many folds if there was noise as there often was even at dawn a huddle of men clogging a woman deliriously chanting the mysteries his arrival would cause much of it to die They watched as he shivered the length of the cabin as he dragged himself down through the bundles and baskets. Flaccid with exhaustion, dripping and coughing, he would peel the drenched coat from his shuddering torso, fold it and roll it to a shape of a bolster and slump in his blanket to sleep. No matter the happening, he would sleep all the day invulnerable to the noises of babies or seasickness to the quarrels and tears and fighting and gaming that made up the clatter of life below decks he would lie on the boards like a corpse mice scuttled over him he never gave a twitch roaches ran under the collar of his semit about him the children would canter or puke men would scrape fiddles or bellow or argue women would haggle for little spare food for food was this water Dominion's only currency, its disbursement a matter of fevered speculation. From the heart of the den came the groans of the sick, rising like prayers from their paltry bunks. The line for the only two water-closets in steerage formed directly past the coffin lid of squalid floor that the ghost had silently claimed as his birth. One lavatory was cracked, the other clogged and overflowing— By seven in the morning, the ammoniac stench, constant as the cold and cries of steerage, would have invaded that floating dungeon with savage force. The stink had an almost corporeal presence. Rotten food, rotten flesh, rotten fruit of rotting bowels. You smelt it on your clothes, your hair, your hands, on the glass you drank from, and the bread you ate— Tobacco smoke, vomit, stale perspiration, mildewed clothes, filthy blankets, and rot-gut whiskey. At eight o'clock, the galley crew distributed the daily ration. Half a pound of hardtack and a quarter of water for each adult. Half that banquet for every child. Roll call was taken at a quarter after nine. Those who had died the night before were removed from steerage to await disposal. Disposal. The plywood bunks would be hastily hosed down, swabs were mopped across the boards, blankets would be collected and boiled in urine to kill the lice that spread scabies. After they had eaten, the people of steerage would dress and wander up to the deck— there they would walk in the clean, cold air, would sit on the boards and beg from the sailors, would watch through the cast-iron, double-locked gates as we first-class passengers took pastries and coffee under the shelter of the silken awnings. The first days passed with agonizing slowness. Through the passengers' stupefaction, they had learned at Liverpool that the ship would be taking them back to Ireland before setting out to confront "'The Atlantic.' The news led to frustrated drinking among the main, which in turn had led to frustrated fights. Most and steerage had sold all they owned to gather the fare across to Liverpool. Many had been robbed in that unhappy and violent city, swindled into parting with their few possessions. Now they were being carried back to Dublin, from where they had fled in the weeks before, resigned to never setting eyes on their homeland again. But even that small blessing was to be denied them... We had chopped across a filthy tempered Irish sea and docked at Kingstown to take on provisions, then crept down the jagged southeast coast, making for Queenstown and the county of Cork, or Cove, as it is known in the Gaelic language. Seeing Wicklow glide past or Wexford or Waterford seemed to many a bit of taunt. At Queenstown a hundred more passengers came on, their condition so dreadful that it made the others seem as royalty. "'I saw one elderly woman, little more than an agglomeration of rags, barely gained the gangplank, only to die on the foredeck. "'Her children beseeched the captain to take her to America anyway. "'No means were available to pay for her burial, but they could not support the shame of dumping "'her body on the wharf. "'The captain had refused to acquiesce. "'A sympathetic man, he was a Quaker by faith.' "'but bound by a set of regulations he dared not to transgress. "'After almost an hour of weeping and begging, "'a middle course was discovered and carefully plotted. "'The woman's body was wrapped in a blanket from the captain's own bunk, "'then placed in the lock-up until we had left the port, "'at which point it was discreetly thrown overboard. "'Her people had to do it themselves. "'No seaman could be asked to touch the remains in case of infection.' It was later recounted by the fourth engineer, who against all advice had been moved to assist them, that they had disfigured her face terribly with some kind of blade, fearful that the current would drift her back to Crosshaven, where she might be recognized by her former neighbors. The batterings of recent crossings had taken their toll of the star, a vessel approaching the end of her service. In her 80 years' span she had borne many cargoes, Wheat from Carolina, for the hungry of Europe. Afghanistan opium, black powder explosive. Sugar from Mississippi, African slaves for the sugar plantations. A few of the steerage people were offered work by the captain's mate, coopering, caulking, doing odd bits of joinery, stitching up shrouds out of the lengths of sailcloth. These were envied by their comrades who had no trade or whose trade back in Ireland had been tending sheep. "'as useless an occupation aboard the ship "'as it would surely prove in the slums and rookeries of Brooklyn. "'On-board work meant extra food. "'For some, it meant survival. "'No Catholic priest was among us on the Star of the Sea, "'but sometimes in the afternoon the Methodist minister "'would recite a few uncontroversial words on the quarter-deck "'or read aloud from the Scriptures.' A small-headed, dapper, compassionate man, he would stand on his tiptoes and conduct them with his toothbrush as they sang the adamant hymns of his denomination. Down in steerage the ghost slept on through the singing. And then the darkness would descend again. He would rise from his flea-ridden heap of stinking bedding and devour his ration like a man possessed. His food was left for him in a pail beside his berth, and though... Theft of food was far from unknown on the star. Nobody ever stole the ghosts. He would take a drink of water. Every other day he would shave. Then he would don his ancient greatcoat as a warrior putting on his armor of battle and bluster his way up into the night. The steerage cabin was situated directly below the main deck. Its half-rotted roof planks here and there as brittle as the biscuits that kept its inhabitants once swallowed from death. So sometimes in steerage, as the dusk came down, they would hear the clug of his wooden shoe above them, a thud and a shower of powdery splinters, causing children to chuckle into their gruel or take a kind of delicious fright. Some of the mothers would seize on their trepidation. If you're not as good and do as you're bidden, I'll put you above for Lord Ugly to eat you.